Good afternoon. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow here at the Center for Constitutional Studies at Cato. The Supreme Court's ruling last June was only the end of the beginning as far as Obamacare litigation is concerned. Uh, myriad lawsuits unrelated to the individual mandate, tax, whatever it is, have continued, and following Nancy Pelosi's advice to dig deeper into what's in the law, others have been filed based on new developments. The more we read and the more regulations are promulgated, the more constitutional and other defects are found. Issues range from employer mandates to infringement on religious beliefs to a separation of powers challenge against the Independent Payment Advisory Board. There are also challenges to the constitutionality of Chief Justice John Roberts's health insurance non-purchase tax, which I call the unicorn tax, a creature of no known constitutional provenance that'll never be seen again, and which Ted Olson has compared to the Higgs boson, because it can't be seen, disappears upon occurrence, and is the god particle that controls everything in the universe. We're even starting to see lawsuits regarding the implementation of the law as a host of agencies promulgate rules, as I said, that often go beyond even the legislation's expansive text. To discuss this resistance along Obamacare's road to our brave new utopian world, we've brought together the lawyers leading two of these cases and a non-lawyer who's leading the charge in persuading states not to set up their own exchanges or expand Medicaid, and who also somehow happens to be one of the intellectual godfathers uh, of the challenge to the IRS's uh, uh, rule that's getting a lot of uh, attention. I'll introduce each of the panelists right before they speak, but before I do that, let me outline for you the case or series of cases that have probably gotten the most publicity thus far uh, the so-called contraceptive mandate cases. Now this, I think, to my mind, in the general scheme of Obamacare is one of the smaller issues, uh, only affects a, a particular uh, uh, provision regarding coverage for contraceptives, uh, what some people consider to be abortifacients and indeed possibly abortion itself, uh, and uh, you know, directly affects those who have religious beliefs uh, in conflict with that. Um, there's other things, I think, that affect more people, the employer mandate, tax credits, all these different things, the rise in premiums caused by different machinations, et cetera, et cetera. But I think this uh, issue in a micro, is a microcosm of uh, everything that's wrong with Obamacare in terms of uh, having uh, centralized bureaucrats decide that certain things, uh, in this case, so-called free uh, birth control, is more important than certain things that uh, Americans heretofore have held quite dear, their religious uh, beliefs, their uh, desire not to be required to do something, uh, etc. cetera. Um, there are now exceptions for a host of religious organizations, uh, and that has been recently, uh, last week you might have heard, uh, expanded these exemptions as to who's not going to be covered by the contraceptive mandates. Not just, it's now not just going to be churches uh, or organizations focused on worship, but also religious organizations with certain other nonprofit goals. Uh, it's not clear yet whether this takes care of the lawsuits, for example, by uh, Belmont Abbey College and Wheaton College, which is a case that uh, was recently uh, at the interim level uh, ruled upon by the D.C. Circuit, Cato filed in that case on certain technical 
uh, administrative grounds about who can sue and when, and the court effectively said, okay, government, we're taking uh, your word and uh, you have to make certain exemptions or change your contraceptive mandate in a certain way to accommodate uh, these sorts of institutions, and you have to report to us every 60 days about your progress with that. Uh, the, the, the regulatory change last week uh, expands certain types of exemptions, uh, still might not reach nonprofits that are religiously organized if not affiliated with a church, uh, probably, or a denomination of other kinds, and certainly does not apply to for-profit organizations, businesses. And a lot of the lawsuits around the country um, uh, are brought by organizations, companies like Hobby Lobby uh, is probably the biggest one, the Arts and Crafts uh, uh, Emporium, uh, and others whose owners uh, have the same types of religious objections, uh, but they are not a uh, religious organization or even a, um, you know, they don't, they're not a soup kitchen or a college or, or other type of uh, nonprofit um, uh, goal. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, what does it matter? Uh, if we're to respect religious belief, why does the motive of those espousing them matter for whether the government gets to trample them? The owners of Hobby Lobby and, and others of these uh, religiously motivated uh, owners donate plenty to charity out of the profits they make, possibly having greater impact than many of the nonprofits that are or will be uh, exempt. And even if they don't, this country was founded on ideals of religious liberty that went on to be enshrined in the First Amendment. So why would we just ignore them? And moreover, the changes in the regulation, the exemptions and, and new rules and so forth, present a sort of moral fiction. That is, the religious institutions are still required by the government to give their workers an insurer, and that insurer is then required by the government to give those workers this type of coverage that people object to on religious grounds. But somehow these religious employers are supposed to imagine that they're not giving uh, their workers access to contraceptives, uh, abortions, and other things that they object to. I mean, it brings to mind an analogy, and I, I'm taking this from uh, uh, the blog of one of the lawyers in one of these cases, uh, Matt Bauer, who says, uh, suppose the government decides that college students need access to pornography for their sexual health. It forces all colleges to give their students a free subscription to the Playboy channel. Certain colleges, Christian or otherwise, object. So the government says it'll merely force these colleges to give their students a subscription to cable TV and then force the cable company to uh, provide, uh, to include the Playboy channel as part of that subscription. Is that any different? Imagine the government wants to empower Second Amendment rights. Okay, so let's you know, talk about something that might gore somebody else's ox, right? Um, it pairs employers with local families struggling with mental illness and requires the employers to provide the families with free handguns. Uh, certain people object. So the government forces the groups to give people with mental illness a membership at a shooting range and then forces the shooting range to provide these people uh, with guns. Or maybe the government decides that whether you're on the left or on the right, you just need to calm down, uh, especially uh, religious fanatics and ultra-secular activists, atheist activists or what have you. It forces employers, therefore, to su supplement the water supply in their buildings with sedatives. Certain people object, so the government instead forces the groups to maintain an account with the water company, which is then forced to put sedatives in the group's water supply. Or, have you had enough of this yet? You know, I mean, maybe the government decides that what troubled teenagers really need is more beer. It forces employers to donate a free case of beer to local teenagers every month. When people object, 
the government just forces the groups to give their local teenagers a membership at Costco, which is required to give the teenagers a free case of beer every month. Uh, I mean, this is a manner of snake oil moral theology, uh, with the administration imposing its moral views on any, in this case, religious entity that, that disagrees. Um, I personally have no problem with contraceptives, or uh, I don't think uh, uh, any of these things that are the subject of this particular regulation. But as always, my and Cato's objection is the mandate portion, and you know why the government, you know, what, is is Sandra Fluke getting free birth control such a compelling interest that we need to trample on uh, the rest of our constitutional um, protections and, and freedoms to to get her that. Anyhow, to talk, we can talk about more about this in the Q&A if you like. To talk about some of the other cases, which, as I said, I think have more profound uh, uh, practical consequences, uh, although uh, also touching on this general theme of uh, we're all in it together, and therefore uh, the government knows best who should be covered and how and how it all should work and, and so forth. To talk about uh, one of these cases and, and uh, some of the more interesting constitutional theories brought to bear in challenging the, the, justice, the Chief Justice Roberts tax thing is uh, Tim Sandifer, who's a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and an adjunct scholar at Cato. As the lead attorney in PLF's Economic Liberty Project, he works to protect businesses against abusive government regulation and has won important victories for free enterprise in California, Oregon, Missouri, and other states. I love to hear uh, Tim talking about his cases because typically there's something like uh, a moving company that wants to set up a, a business in some town, and uh, the law is that to get a license, they have to get the approval of the other business, uh, the other moving companies, uh, to certify that indeed there needs to be more competition. So uh, these just just bizarre regulations uh, that we have. Tim uh, is tremendously prolific, the author of two, soon to be three books. Uh, on property rights, the right to earn a living, and, and other things, over 40 scholarly articles on subjects ranging from eminent domain to intellectual property, evolution and creationism, and the legal issues attending slavery and the Civil War. Uh, he was even named Appellate Lawyer of the Week. You know, unlike me, I just, you know, kind of do these speeches and write articles and occasionally uh, attach my name to an amicus brief that somebody else has written, but Tim actually litigates these things, and he was named Appellate Lawyer of the Week by the National Law Journal in 2011. He's also an adjunct professor at the McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, uh, and a frequent guest on a whole host of radio and TV programs. Tim is a graduate of Chapman University uh, and uh, a School of Law and Hillsdale College. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I brought along an article here uh, that more thoroughly explains some of the, the subjects I'll talk about and the, that I won't have time to discuss. Um, and if, you didn't, if you're watching online or you didn't get, manage to pick up a copy, send me an email at uh, tsandifer at pacificlegal.org, and I'm happy to send you an electronic copy of this. Um, our case focuses on the, the question of, okay, so it's a tax. Let's say it's a tax. Now what? Uh, as you know, in June, what the Supreme Court, it, well, Chief Justice Roberts' swing opinion said that the individual mandate provision in Obamacare isn't really a mandate. What it really is is a tax for not buying health insurance. Now, the distinction between a law that forces you to buy health, health insurance and a law that only taxes you for not buying health insurance is the kind of distinction that only a lawyer could love. 
But uh, it is actually rather important in some respects. First of all, Chief Justice Roberts argues that it's not a mandate, it's a tax, meaning you are free to choose not to buy the insurance as long as you pay the tax. And that means it would be unconstitutional if it were actually a compulsory mandate. He goes at length in the opinion explaining the difference between the, the power to uh, uh, regulate commerce, which allows you to compel the behavior, and the power to tax, which is only the power to force, the go uh, force pre people to pay a certain amount of money to the government. And that suggests, and indeed strongly implies, that it would be unconstitutional if it were in fact a mandate. And Roberts emphasizes, I think, that one of the reasons he makes this ruling is because, in his view at least, the amount of tax is relatively modest. If the tax were so high or were increased to such a, way, a rate as to be a practical compulsion, then it would be unconstitutional. So he pitches the case as the reverse of the Drexel Furniture case, also known as the child labor tax case. In that case, the Supreme Court said that what was purporting to be a tax was really a mandate. He says, in this case, what purports to be a mandate is really just a tax. Okay, so let's assume it's a tax. Now what? As the court itself acknowledges, assuming is it, that it's a tax, it therefore must comply with the constitutional restrictions on taxation. And that includes the, the requirements of uniformity or apportionment, and in any case, the origination clause. Now, uniformity and apportionment are not involved in the case I'm litigating, so I address that in the article and I won't discuss them here. But origination, the origination clause says that all bills for raising revenue must originate in the House of Representatives, although the Senate can amend such bills as it can with any other bill. We had a lawsuit going forward in, in, back when this all started that got put on hold while the Supreme Court was considering the case. And now that the court has issued its decision, we went back to our judge and we got permission to amend our complaint to argue that if this is a tax, it did not originate in the House of Representatives and is therefore unconstitutional. Our client, Matt Sissel, is a, um, is a medic and a member of the uh, National Guard, an Iraq War veteran, who doesn't believe that he should be forced by the government to buy health insurance. So we challenged the law initially under the Commerce Clause, just like what went up to the Supreme Court, and now we're arguing that it violates the Origination Clause. The Origination Clause was very important to the Founding Fathers. They understood that the power to tax is a very dangerous power. It's the most direct form of sovereignty that is experienced by most individuals in the nation, and therefore it should be kept close to the vest. It should be kept close, as close as possible to the people themselves, <coughs> that is, to their direct representatives who are elected locally every two years, and not with the Senate, which is elected at that time by state legislatures and, and every six years on a rotating uh, uh, basis. But the Patient and Protection and Affordable Care Act did not originate in the House. It originated in the Senate. What happened was the Senate generated this legislation and took a bill that had been passed in the House, scooped out its entire contents, and replaced it with the bill that the Senate would prefer to see, and then passed that. Now, the original bill had nothing to do with health care or health insurance or anything. It would have provided certain financial incentives for, for veterans to own, to buy their first homes. And this legislation was emptied of its entire contents and replaced. Now this technique, this shell bill technique, or the gut and amend, we call it in California, is, is used sometimes by state legislatures and by Congress to, 
to try and you know, play with the procedural rules. Well, this bill is at this stage of passage, so why don't we just replace it and amend it? But there has never been a case in American history where the Supreme Court has addressed the question of whether Congress can use this trick to get around the clear constitutional command of the origination clause and say, yeah, the Senate can originate legislation and then can just, with this trick of le legislative ledger domain, take an existing f uh, House bill and replace it with its own legislation. Now, there, has been, there have been some cases on the question of origination. And the leading one is a case called Flint versus Stone Tracy Company from 1911. And what happened there was there was a House bill that would have, I believe, would have reduced some, one kind of tax. And the Senate considered it and amended it by taking that out and replacing it with a bill that would have increased a different kind of tax. And that went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, OK, this is allowed, but look, there's a limit. The Senate can't get around the entire origination clause by amendment, by one of these clever amendments. The amendment, in order to pass constitutional muster, the amendment must be germane. That was the word, germane. What does that mean, germane? Germane to what? Well, the court says germane to the subject matter of the House bill. Now, in our case, the government has moved to dismiss our lawsuit by saying, oh, it was germane, because the first bill had something to do with taxes, and the second bill had something to do with taxes. Well, by that theory, of course, one bill is germane to another th bill because they're both written on paper, or they're both written in the English language. What Flint versus Stone Tracy requires is that the bills be germane to the same actual subject matter. The government also argues that, okay, okay, Obamacare's a tax, but it's not a bill for raising revenue. Well, to repeat myself, the difference between a tax and a bill for raising revenue might be the kind of difference that only a lawyer could love. But it is something that the court has recognized in the past. There was a case called Munoz Flores in 1990, in which the Supreme Court said, well, this is a tax of a sort, but it's not really, it's not a bill for raising revenue. What kinds of taxes are not bills for raising revenue and therefore not required to comply with the origination clause? That's taxes that are used to compel enforcement, to, re, to, to enforce a law that's passed under some other kind of clause. In Munoz Flores, it was uh, a criminal statute, and the Congress attached to it a, a requirement that, that convicts pay into a fund that was used to, uh, to, to help the victims of crime. And, con and the court said, that's not a tax, because the money doesn't go into the general fund. It just goes to help enforce the criminal law that, that, that exists. So it's like a, it's an enforcement penalty rather than a tax, right? And there are several cases that say that there are these two categories. There are taxes that go into the general fund for general revenue. And then there's these enforcement penalties. The clearest case on this actually was a 1943 case called Rogers versus United States. This was a follow-up on the Wickard versus Filburn wheat case, you know. And in that case, the farmer said, well, this tax for not growing wheat is a direct tax. And the court said the direct tax clause doesn't apply, you know, these, these tax limits because it's not really a tax. The fee for not growing wheat is used, at, or the, for growing wheat, rather, is used in order to enforce a regulation of commerce, right? So it's really an enforcement penalty, and the Supreme Court has consistently recognized this. The Sixth Circuit in the Rogers case said there is a marked distinction between taxation for revenue and the imposition of sanctions by Congress under the Commerce Clause. Okay, now let's look at an NFIB. The court there quite explicitly says 
This is not a law passed under the Commerce Clause. This is just a tax. This is not a penalty. This is not like the Drexel Furniture case. This is not just a small amount that's used to enforce compliance with some command from the federal government. This is just a tax, and it goes into the General Revenue Fund, right? Well, then the Origination Clause ought to, ought to apply. The courts should not be out there carving in new exceptions to the Origination Clause so that now, in addition to financial penalties for noncompliance, now we also won't apply the origination clause to other kinds of taxes. Now, notice that the NFIB case, by the way, does go on to address whether the payment requirement in Section 5000A is a direct tax or not, right? They, they talk about that in the decision. Why would they have done that if the, if the, the, the required the mandate amount of money was not a tax. They wouldn't have done that. They would have said the direct tax clause doesn't apply because it's a penalty. But they didn't do that. They said it's a tax. Therefore, the direct tax clause applies. And if the direct tax clause applies, then the origination clause should also apply. A final point. One of the really important issues in Roberts's opinion is he's, he's a, he takes pains Somewhat unconvincingly, I think, but he's at, he's at pains to explain why we don't have to worry about this kind of a, of, a, of a requirement tax, a tax for not doing something. He says, we don't have to worry that this is going to be abused by Congress in the same way that the Commerce Clause might be. And, you know, take what you, you will from his, his opinion on that score. I think it's all the more important that these political controls on the taxing power be applied in order to prevent those kinds of abuses. The reason why the Founding Fathers kept the taxing power as close as possible to the people was to prevent the Congress from abusing that power. One of my favorite anti-federalists, Brutus, who was opposed to the ratification of the Constitution, Brutus wrote in one of the anti-federalist papers that the power to tax, he said, the power to tax will follow every individual human in, in the United States. It will follow the ladies to their toilet. It will follow the workman to his workshop. It will follow the farmer to his plow. In short, it will light upon the head of every individual in the United States, and to them all, it will say, give, give, give. And the, founding, the, the, the Federalists said, no, look, that's an exaggeration. You don't have to worry about this. And one of the reasons you don't have to worry, aside from the enumeration of powers that limits federal authority, one of the reasons you don't have to worry about this is because the origination clause will ensure that your elected representatives are in charge of the taxing power. If we're going to allow the government to use taxes in order to compel individual behavior as Obamacare threatens to do, it's all the more important that we keep our strong democratic controls over that power. And failing to enforce the origination clause in a case like ours, I think, really runs the risk of unmooring that power from the Constitution even farther than the Commerce Clause has become unmoored. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Most germane. Our next speaker is Christina Sandifer. We're all about efficiency here at Cato, so we get a, a two-for husband-wife couple uh, to present on these issues. Uh, Christina is a staff attorney at the Goldwater Institute's Sharf Norton Center for Constitutional Litigation. Before joining Goldwater, she, wor she worked to advance liberty as a law clerk at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where she met Tim and a research intern at the Michigan-based Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Christina earned her JD from Michigan State uh, Law School 
where she served as notes editor of the Law Review and president of the Federalist Society chapter. She also graduated uh, from Hillsdale College and completed an honors thesis on the economic history of the U.S. Postal Service. I would be curious, uh, I guess, offline to hear what you think of the latest attempt to try to make uh, hay of, uh, uh, of the USPS. But anyway, here to talk about something more germane again uh, uh, under the, the, the real sense of that term, Christina Sandifer. Thank you, Ilya. Uh, I am actually very thrilled to be here. Uh, this is my very first time speaking at the Cato Institute. And for those of you who are libertarian, you'll know that that's sort of like playing Madison Square Garden uh, for a libertarian. So um, I, I've been on that side many, many times, and it's very exciting to be on this side. This is also the first time that I've spoken at an event with my husband. So that makes this a very cool date night. <laughs> Now, I do have uh, some good news and bad news. And we have wine for you afterwards as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Do we have a violinist? <laughs> Nonprofits, I'm telling you. Uh, now, if we had worked for the government. I have some good news and bad, for, uh, bad news for you tonight. The good news is I will not be speaking about the individual mandate. Sort of a bummer. Everybody has been talking about it, and uh, I will not be talking about the individual mandate tonight. However... I have some bad news. The bad news is what I'm talking about, I think, is actually much worse from a constitutional perspective. So believe it or not, it actually gets worse. Now, what I'd like to talk to you about is another unconstitutional provision of the federal health care law, and that is the Independent Payment Advisory Board. Quite a mouthful. We call it IPAB. Out of curiosity, how many of you have heard of IPAB before? This is the first time that I have spoken to a group where almost every hand has gone up. That's fantastic. Wow, you've all heard of IPAB. I wish I hadn't. You know, uh, I, 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 take, I take issue with, uh, with something that Tim said, actually, in, in his talk. And uh, he made reference to laws that are written in English. And uh, clearly, you have never read the section of this law that deals with the Independent Payment Advisory Board. Uh, I do not believe it is actually written in American English. Unfortunately, though, I have read, in fact, the entire bill, including the part of the law describing the Independent Payment Advisory Board. So what is IPAB? IPAB is a board of 15 unelected expert bureaucrats. You know you're getting something good when the government calls for experts, right? Experts to run our lives. They're expert bureaucrats. They're appointed by the president. They're confirmed by the Senate, and they are in charge of keeping Medicare costs down. That, 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 is their, that is what they're supposed to do. They're going to curb Medicare spending. Now, how it works, basically, is that every year, and this is starting next year, if the chief actuary determines that the Medicare spending rate is going to go above a particular preset target, then what happens is IPAB steps in, and they have to make a proposal. This proposal will recommend cuts and, uh, in, in Medicare spending, and they submit that to Congress. So from a libertarian perspective, that doesn't sound so bad, right? In general, we tend to like it when the government stops spending our money and is a little bit more reasonable. So 
what exactly can IPAB do with these proposals? Well, one thing that, uh, that, that you hear a lot of people talking about and that the law mentions is that IPAB can cut reimbursement rates to, for medical services uh, and you know, to doctors, to hospitals, healthcare providers, that sort of thing. They decrease the reimbursement rate. But in reality, if you read the law, you'll realize that that is just the tip of the iceberg. IPAB actually can do much, much more. In fact, IPAB can do anything to cut spending if the board thinks that it is, quote, related to Medicare, end quote. <clears throat> this includes changes to healthcare markets beyond the Medicare market. In fact, there is a provision in the law that requires IPAB, when it is drafting its proposals, to consider the effects of other healthcare markets, including the private market, on the Medicare market. So IPAB has quite a broad scope. Now, it still doesn't sound so bad. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't sound that unusual. We know that Congress has advisory boards. In fact, MedPAC is, is a board that is, sounds very similar so far to IPAB. And if IPAB's drafting up these proposals and giving them to Congress, maybe that would be a good thing. Maybe it will help Congress finally make some cuts. But the problem is the name of IPAB is misleading, believe it or not. There's actually a government agency with a misleading name. Because the Independent Payment Advisory Board is not advisory whatsoever. IPAB's proposals, and I love how throughout the law they call these proposals or recommendations because that sounds so innocuous. But in fact, IPAB's proposals automatically become law. So they're really the opposite of proposals. Now, on August 15th of every single year that IPAB is going to make a proposal, the law requires the Secretary of Health and Human Services to implement exactly what is in that IPAB proposal. They become law. And what is worse than 15 bureaucrats setting the law for the entire country in healthcare? That would be one bureaucrat setting the law for the entire country in healthcare because if the president does not appoint members to IPAB, and by the way, you may have seen, those of you, uh, everyone here seems very interested in IPAB, so those of you who have been watching the news might, see, might have seen that uh, the president has been having trouble finding people to serve on the IPAB board. He didn't call me. Um, but uh, anyway, if the president fails to make appointments by the time IPAB is supposed to act, then guess what? The law takes care of that. It just says that Secretary Sebelius gets to come in and make the law for us. So really, we've, we've taken the entire power over the healthcare market and given it to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And I'm just beginning. It gets worse. So let's say that Congress doesn't like what IPAB did, and it wants to replace IPAB's proposal. How does it do that? Well, it's incredibly difficult. First, if IPAB actually wants to replace, a, or if Congress wants to replace an IPAB proposal, it has to pass its own cuts before the IPAB proposal becomes law. The uh, federal law requires Congress to go through a complicated fast-track procedure. It, the law dictates where the bill has to be introduced, which committees it has to be introduced in. It limits, severely limits debate on the actual bill. And once Congress, if Congress can make it 
through all of that, it says that Congress actually has to meet the same spending target that IPAD met. So basically, they really don't have much discretion at all. Now, if Congress wants to do something different, then they have to muster, not only do we have to get through the fast track procedure and we have to pass it in the House, but the bill has to pass with a three-fifths supermajority of the Senate and get the President's signature. And we have to do all of that before the iPad proposal becomes law. So what this sounds, this, this, this actually makes it very difficult for Congress to get any sort of real reform through. And so say Congress decides, you know, this is ridiculous, this is not working, how do we get rid of IPAB? Say that Congress wants to repeal IPAB. Well, Congress really can't repeal IPAB, except for during a very, very short window during 2017. In 2017, between January 1st and February 1st, if Congress wants to repeal IPAB, it has to introduce a bill that is specifically worded. Literally, you can go into the law, you copy and paste, the text from the law into this bill, introduce it, and it has to pass by a three-fifths supermajority in both houses. Now, I should note that this supermajority is not all present members, which is typically how we count supermajorities. It is of all elected members. That's one of the most stringent supermajority requirements in all of our country's history. So you've got to get three-fifths of both houses together, you've got to get the president's signature, and all this has to be done by August 15th, 2017. If not, if Congress misses this window, then not only can it never repeal IPAB, and IPAB becomes permanently entrenched, but also Congress will lose the ability to ever supersede IPAB's proposals. And so now we really do have an unelected, unaccountable board making our health care laws for us, and there is not a thing that Congress can do about it according to this law. <sighs> Needless to say, this is unconstitutional. The Constitution establishes a federal government of limited powers, as you know, and as everybody learned in eighth grade civics class, it divides those powers into three branches. I should say everybody but the authors of this law, apparently. Um, divides power into three branches. The reason that we do this, of course, is because it protects liberty. The Supreme Court has just recognized this recently. You know, people sort of roll their eyes at these structure, structural protections, but the Supreme Court just a few years ago in the Bond versus United States case said, no, these protections are really important. The reason that we divide power in our government is because those branches will check each other and this protects people's liberty. So, the Supreme Court said, has said that, you know, if Congress wants to delegate power to another agency, it can do that, but it has to have an intelligible principle when it does that. And that basically means that it has to give some sort of guidelines to the agency so that it is not actually legislating, but it is just filling in the details. So what did we say that uh, the guidelines are for IPAB? Well, it has to be related to Medicare, right? Um, our court, when we challenged IPAB in court, a uh, court in, in Phoenix said that that was good enough. That was good enough because, see, the law does actually impose extra limits. It says that IPAB can't restrict benefits. It says that IPAB can't raise premiums. And the law says IPAB can't ration care, so no death panel to be worried about, right? 
except for that, it doesn't exactly say that because the statute doesn't define what it means to ration care. And if we're concerned that IPAP did ration care, we can't challenge it. We can't challenge anything that IPAB did because, in fact, IPAB is immune from judicial review. And this is why this is even worse than a delegation of power. This is a flat-out violation of the separation of powers doctrine. IPAB is insulated from judicial review. It's insulated, as we discussed, from congressional review. And also, uh, it's not subject to notice and comment rulemaking, as many other agencies are. It doesn't have to be bipartisan in makeup, as many other agencies are. So basically, what we have with IPAB is that we have a consolidation of every single power in the federal government, but, but it is isolated from all of those branches from review. So we have a superpower agency that is accountable to absolutely nobody, and it's running our healthcare system. Now, anyone who knows me knows how much I dislike the Federal Reserve, and I will say that IPAB is actually worse from a constitutional perspective from the Federal Reserve. At least the Federal Reserve actually is subject to judicial review. There's nothing that we can do about IPAB. This is the absolute worst violation of the separation of powers in the history of the United States. So there are some reasons to be optimistic, believe it or not. We'll be appealing our lawsuit. and. There has been some indication that Supreme Court justices, including both uh, Thomas and Scalia, are interested in looking into the separation of powers doctrine a little bit more strictly than they have in the past. And I'll leave you with this quote from Justice Scalia from 25 years ago. He predicted what might happen if the court continues to ignore the separation of powers doctrine. He said that the court's treatment will make it, quote, Tempting to create an expert medical commission, mostly MDs with perhaps a few PhDs in moral philosophy, to dispose of such thorny, no-win political issues as the withholding of life support systems in federally funded hospitals, end quote. Sounds an awful lot like IPAB, doesn't it? 25 years ago, Scalia knew that this could happen if we don't pay attention to separation of powers doctrines. And I will leave it at that. Happy to take questions afterwards. Thank you. Christina, I would be happy to forward uh, your nomination to IPAB, but I don't think the uh, Secretary Sebelius is really taking calls from me. Probably not. Um, but I, I do have a, a, actually a question now before the, the Q&A. Uh, and obviously, I've been following uh, your case and, you know, tried to learn uh, about IPAB and all the constitutional defects. But I just don't, I mean, sincerely, I'm not, you know, uh, uh, making a, some sort of rhetorical ploy here, but how can a future Congress, let's say there's such a tide in this country, and in 2016, 300 Cato sponsors are elected to Congress, 350, whatever supermajority you want to posit, can they really not repeal this? I mean, every, they can repeal every law in the country except for this one? And you know, it's, it's, a really, it's a really interesting question um, because there actually is, some of you might know, there actually is a repeal bill in the House right now. A representative, it's a bipartisan bill. Representatives Rowe uh, and Schwartz have introduced it. And of course, it violates the statute, right? The statute says if you want to repeal IPAB, you have to bring that bill in 2017. So it would be interesting to see what would happen uh, if, if the bill passed and the president signed it. I can't imagine... President Obama would sign the bill. But if he did, what would happen? Well, um, it's an interesting question, but I think that ultimately 
that part of the law can't actually be enforced because you cannot, and this is a principle that goes back to, you know, John Locke wrote about, about this in 1690. You can't entrench legislation uh, against uh, repeal from future legislatures. It deprives the legislature of its ability to legislate. So, you know, that part of the law is also clearly unconstitutional. It deprives Congress of its power to legislate, and, um, and, and it's just one more reason why this is clearly a very unconstitutional provision. All right. Um, moving right along to Michael Cannon, who is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Prior to that, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee under Chairman Larry Craig, where he advised on health, education, labor, welfare, and the Second Amendment. Did you take narrow or wide stances on those issues, Michael? Um, he's appeared on all the networks and cable news channels and was cited by the Washington Post as, quote, an influential healthcare wonk. His writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal and a host of other publications. He's the co-editor of uh, the relatively recent ebook that Cato has put out, Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform. Very interesting section on uh, constitutional uh, and legal challenges uh, there. Uh, and co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. So, you know, we're not just about saying, no, repeal this, this is bad. We actually do have uh, positive proposals for reform because I think like most people in, in the country, we agree that the status quo, or I guess the status quo uh, ante uh, before Obamacare is, is not good. Uh, Michael holds a BA from uh, University of Virginia and a master's degree in economics and law and economics from uh, George Mason University. So although he's not technically a lawyer, I guess we can count him as, as half of one, for good or ill. Michael. Thank you, Ilya. Thank you, Tim and Christina. Ilya, especially thank you for your uh, contribution to the book Replacing Obamacare, the sections on con the constitutional challenges to Obamacare, and thank you for praising your own work. <laughs> um, I'm going to uh, talk about uh, three... Uh, uh, Obamacare... Uh, I'm going I'm to talk about two legal challenges related to Obamacare. First, I'm going to start out with... I'm not sure that everyone knows that Obamacare actually created three new entitlement programs. There were the, the, the entitlements related to the health insurance exchanges, the expansion of the Medicaid program, and then there's a third called the CLASS Act. This is a long-term care entitlement program. I'm happy to report that we only have two of these left because President Obama and Congress repealed the third. They repealed the CLASS Act as part of the fiscal cliff avoidance deal. So whenever anyone tells you that President Obama won't uh, sign a repeal bill into the law, he's actually already repealed one of the three entitlement programs in his health care law and has signed into law the repeal or the uh, pairing back of half a dozen other provisions of that law. So I'm going to be talking about challenges related to the other two entitlement programs uh, and lawsuits that have been filed uh, in that regard by two states, uh, one by Maine and the other by Oklahoma. Maine's lawsuit has to do with the Medicaid expansion and how the Obama administration is uh, implementing that in the wake of the Supreme Court's ruling in NFIB versus Sebelius. And the Oklahoma lawsuit is the one you may have heard more about. It has to do with the subsidies uh, that uh, are available in certain circumstances through the health insurance exchanges that Obamacare authorizes. Now, 
That's the, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do the Medicaid one first and close with the lawsuit, the Oklahoma lawsuit about exchanges because that's the more interesting one. I want you to keep paying attention. That's the one that uh, really has supporters of this law nervous. And I wanna emphasize, you know, to, uh, I want you to, uh, and I ask you to keep in mind that what, these lawsuits are not actually challenges to Obamacare. They're not challenges to the law. What both of these lawsuits are trying to do, what these states are seeking to do, is to get the Obama administration <coughs> to follow the law, to enforce the law. So first, you may have heard that uh, Michigan uh, Governor Rick Snyder just became the fifth Republican governor to say that he supports implementing Obamacare's Medicaid expansion in his state. But in fact, all governors are implementing parts of that Medicaid expansion uh, because the Obama administration, in defiance of the Supreme Court's ruling in uh, NFIB, NFIB versus Sebelius, is still coercing states into doing so. And the, the only state that appears to be resisting this is Maine. So what am I talking about here? Well, if, if you follow this, you know that before the Supreme Court made Obamacare's Medicaid expansion optional, that expansion required states to uh, expand the programs in numerous way ways. It required states to freeze the eligibility levels uh, in their Medicaid programs. The, the eligibility levels vary from state to state. Medicaid generally covers people, not low-income people, but not all low-income people in their states. States had to freeze those eligibility levels where they were in 2010. They had to open their programs to all adults and children below 138% of the federal poverty level by 2014. Uh, they had to, the law required states to measure income in a way that would further expand enrollment to allow these new health insurance ex exchanges to do enrollment uh, determinations for Medicaid, and Medicaid would have to do the same for the exchanges, and there are a, a host of these provisions. My colleague here at the Cato Institute, Jagadish Gokhale, has estimated that this expansion uh, is so burdensome that it would cost New York $53 billion over the first 10 years. Florida, Illinois, and Texas, it would cost them each $20 billion over the first 10 years. Now, the Supreme Court found that this expansion was so sweeping that it actually transformed Medicaid, and that's their word, transformed Medicaid into, quote, a pro from, quote, a program to care for the neediest among us into, quote, an element of a comprehensive national plan to provide universal health insurance coverage. The court also found that expansion to be coercive and therefore unconstitutional because it threatened to, revo to revoke all existing federal Medicaid funds from states that didn't implement the expansion. This is serious money we're talking about because federal Medicaid funds, on average, account for 12% of states' revenues. So the federal government, as John Roberts put it, was putting a gun to the head of states, saying you have to implement this or you're gonna lose 12% of your revenues, which didn't really give states a choice. So the, the, the remedy that uh, John Roberts settled upon was to tell Congress, all right, you can withhold any new funds that you're providing to states in the law, but you cannot withhold the old Medicaid money. You can't revoke the existing Medicaid funds if states refuse to implement the expansion. In the wake of that ruling, since that ruling, we've seen about 15 states say that, all right, we're gonna opt out of this Medicaid expansion, and there's still about 15 more states that are on the fence, and the number one reason they cite for this is the cost. Yet, in bold defiance of the Supreme Court, the Obama administration has said to states, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna let you opt out of one part of that Medicaid expansion. We're gonna let you opt out of the part that says you have to provide Medicaid coverage to all adult, adults under 138% of the federal poverty level. 
To this day, the administration is continuing to threaten states with the loss of 12% of their revenues if they fail to implement any other part of the Medicaid expansion, including, uh, including mandatory coverage for children up to the age of, or up to 138% of the federal poverty level. For example, uh, HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius threatened to cut off all federal Medicaid funding to Maine because that state unfroze its eligibility levels uh, after Congress passed Obamacare. Only 10 states right now currently comply with the requirement to cover all children below 138% of the federal poverty level. And so Sibelius and HHS are telling those states, you're going to lose all of your federal Medicaid funds unless you comply with this provision. Uh, it's telling the 10 states that are already complying with it, unless you freeze that, those eligibility rules in place, you lose 12% of, uh, of your revenues. And saying to the other 40 states, you better, get, you better implement that part of the expansion, or else you are going to lose 12% of your revenues. Maine has filed suit to stop this attempt to narrow the Supreme Court's ruling. Uh, but that lawsuit is sort of in abeyance right now because of some uh, uh, bureaucratic hurdles that Maine has to, has to clear first. Now, Sebelius's interpretation of the statute can't, simply cannot, I'm sorry, of the Supreme Court's ruling simply cannot be reconciled with the court's opinion. The court repeatedly notes that the expansion encompasses more, the Medicaid expansion. That's what it made optional, the Medicaid expansion. The court repeatedly noted that that expansion encompasses more than newly eligible adults. At the outset of its discussion of this part of the law, the, the court wrote, uh, noted that newly eligible adults are a, a, quote, example of how the law, quote, expands the scope of Medicaid, the Medicaid program and increases the number of individuals the states must cover. The, the court later noted that the expansion transforms Medicaid quote, into a program to meet the health care needs of the entire non-elderly population with income below 138% of the federal poverty level, end quote. In other words, not just adults. Now, according to HHS and Secretary Sebelius, the law's enhanced funding for the newly eligible adult population defines the boundaries of that expansion in, under, the, under the court's ruling. And if, indeed, if that's what the court held, then that would mean that the court rendered only that one part of the expansion uh, to be optional. Only those provisions explicitly, explicitly tied to that enhanced funding. But the court said no such thing. The court cited that uh, enhanced funding solely to show that Congress intended for the Medicaid expansion, of which the newly eligible adults are one part, to transform Medicaid into a cog in the law's overall scheme of universal health insurance coverage. Uh, the court did not cite that enhanced funding to define the bounds of the expansion nor to limit its remedy. So by ignoring and torturing various proportions of the court's opinion, Secretary Sebelius is gutting that court's remedy. The Supreme Court freed states to refuse all to implement all parts of this law's Medicaid expansion, every, and every state should uh, exercise that fr freedom and refuse to do so. But the Obama administration continues to stand in the way doing precisely what the Supreme Court forbade it to do, which is coercing states into implementing parts of that expansion. And so I think that Maine and, uh, and other states should ask the courts to ensure that the administration complies with the law. Now, the other case is one that has been, uh, uh, that, is, uh, that is active. It's actually uh, with a judge in Oklahoma who right now has to decide whether the, uh, the state of Oklahoma and a uh, private employer has standing to, uh, to challenge the administration. It has to do with 
as I said, health, the health insurance exchanges and the subsidies that are available under the, those exchanges. The exchanges are the other major uh, entitlement in this law. It is where half of the insurance, the gains in insurance coverage are supposed to come under this law. And this week, Utah became the 33rd state to refuse, or I'm sorry, to veto <clears throat> parts of the law simply by refusing to create a health insurance exchange. 33 states have said that they're not going to create a health insurance exchange. In the process, under the law as written, they have blocked, they have blocked half a trillion dollars in new government spending, blocked punitive taxes on their employers and uh, individual taxpayers in their states. And yet the Obama administration is trying to deny states that veto power, spend that half trillion dollars in those states, tax employers and individuals in those states. And with 33 states, we're talking about two-thirds of the US population. So the Obama administration is trying to tax two-thirds of medium to uh, large employers in this country without any congressional authorization. And now, why would Congress give the states such a powerful veto? Well, because it was the only way that Obamacare could even become law. Harken back to 2009. The House and the Senate each approved different health care bills. They're similar in a lot of ways. Each of them increased the cost of uh, private health insurance. Each of them offered trillions of dollars in subsidies to hide those costs from consumers so that there wouldn't be a backlash against all the regulations of the law. And those subsidies would be made available through health insurance exchanges, new government agencies called health insurance exchanges. House Democrats wanted one nationwide exchange. Senate Democrats wanted state based exchanges operated by the states. Now, since Congress can't command states to operate exchanges, the Senate Democrats had a problem. They, they had to come up with some way to encourage states to run exchanges. So they, they seized upon a suggestion that was put forward in early 2009 by a law professor named Timothy Jost. Jost proposed that Congress induce states to cooperate, to cooperate by, quote, offering tax subsidies for insurance only in states that complied, end quote. In other words, and Senate Democrats then adopted that recommendation into not only the bill that became the final law, but every iteration of that bill. Every bill that Senate Democrats put forward in 2009 contained this sort of conditional uh, grant of subsidies uh, that were conditional upon state compliance. In fact, the chief author of the, of the final bill, Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus, even acknowledged that his bill and the final bill had this feature. So Senate Democrats intentionally gave states a veto. They needed to do it to get around what we call the commandeering problem, that Congress can't commandeer states. Actually, it's not that much of a problem. It was a problem for them. But shortly after clearing the, that bill cleared the Senate, something funny happened. Massachusetts voters, in their infinite wisdom, elected a Republican named Scott Brown to the Senate. That gave Senate Republicans the 41st vote that they needed to block any House-Senate compromise from making its way back through the Senate. That made that Senate bill the only game in town. It, it instantly became the only bill that could make it through both houses of Congress and make it to the president's desk. House Democrats hated that. They did not want the Senate bill, but it was the only option they had left, so they swallowed hard. They approved that Senate bill with the veto that it gave states over these subsidies, and they sent that bill to President Obama, who signed it. Now, this legislative history shows that Congress intentionally gave states the power to veto those subsidies, and Congress also, again, intentionally gave states a huge incentive to do so. It tied, Congress, the Senate bill tied 
the penalties that the law imposes on employers and many individuals under the employer and individual mandates to those subsidies. So if states blocked those subsidies by not creating an exchange, they would exempt all of their employers from penalties under the employer mandate and exempt, by my count, a total of 12, at least 12 million Americans from the individual mandate. A lot, as I said, a lot of supporters of Obamacare didn't like this feature, but they voted for it either because it was the only bill that would become law, they thought all states would create exchanges and so it wouldn't even matter, or both, whatever the reason. The state's power to veto those provisions is now the law. Now, as of this week, 33 states representing two-thirds of the U.S. population have refused to establish exchanges. As I mentioned before, that blocks half a trillion dollars in spending under this law and exempts at least 8 million residents from the law's punitive taxes and, and about two-thirds of medium to large employers. The Obama administration so fears the consumer backlash that would happen if, without those subsidies, the cost of this law became transparent to consumers, that the administration is attempting to dispense those subsidies and impose those taxes in those 33 states anyway. I want to ask you to wrap your head around that. The President of the United States is trying to spend half a trillion dollars and tax tens of millions of Americans without congressional authorization. Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt and a Texas employer have filed suit to stop the administration. They are not challenging Obamacare. They are challenging the most sweeping attempt at taxation without representation that I think our nation has ever seen. They could and should be joined by every one, every one of the other 32 states, plus every medium to large employer in those states, plus at least 8 million residents of those states, including many poor immigrants, poor legal immigrants, living below the poverty line because, wrap your head around this too, the President of the United States is trying to impose his illegal taxes even on legal immigrants, some legal immigrants living below the poverty line. If and when one of these plaintiffs prevails, the backlash, I think, would practically force Congress and the President, who, again, have already repealed one of this law's entitlements, to reopen the whole thing. So if you want to know whether Obamacare will survive, I suggest you watch Oklahoma. Thank you. I look forward to your comments and questions. All right. Um, please wait to be called on. Wait for the mic. Uh, announce your name and any affiliation, and actually ask a question. Go right up to the front. Is it on? Yes. I'm Nadine Meldice Chason, a woman. And because you began this presentation with reproductive health care, many women are asking the question, um, it, we know that the contraceptive pill is used for many other things besides uh, preventing pregnancy. And the question would be, we're focusing on women's reproductive health, but what about um, men's reproductive health? Are the... Uh, the Viagra, the Cialis, uh, being looked at in terms of a moral issue as women are being looked at as a moral issue? Um, I'm not sure if coverage of Cialis and Viagra is actually required by uh, Obamacare. Some insurers do cover it as a matter of their policies. I don't think there's now, correct me, Michael, if you know, but I, I'm not aware of any regulations requiring insurance companies 
uh, to cover it? I'm not. Uh, in fact, uh, in the Medicare program, where this has been an issue, Medicare maintains that um, that uh, Viagra, et cetera, for when prescribed for purposes of erectile dysfunction, is not medically necessary, and so Medicare does not cover it. That does not for that purpose. That doesn't mean that Medicare doesn't pay for it, or that some people don't use it for that purpose. Who do get it through Medicare? But as you can imagine, it is has been a controversial issue about you know whether taxpayers should have to pay for Viagra for seniors. And I think that it'll probably if it has if it hasn't come up under Obamacare yet, it will. Eyal Moses, no affiliation. My question for Tim Sandefur is. If uh, you were to win your lawsuit, that would seem to invalidate not just Obamacare, but lots of laws that uh, have been passed over the years uh, with the gut and amend method um, that, that relating to taxation. Just one recent example is the in December the fiscal cliff deal. So the concern would be that even if a majority of the Supreme Court were to agree with you on the merits of the case, they might still rule against you or just refuse to take the case because they'd be afraid of, of the consequences. What, what do you think would be the, are the chances that the Supreme Court would actually consider the merits? Uh, I think, first of all, with regard to how many such instances, you know, I don't know. I do know the most, probably the most notorious case as far as the case law is concerned of this happening was the TEFRA tax increase in the 1980s during the Reagan administration, which was a Senate-generated tax increase. And there were dozens of constitutional challenges to that. None ever reached the Supreme Court. Most of them got bounced for lack of standing or some other technical flaw in the case. Um, as for, I believe actually, the fiscal t- cliff um, uh, bill, I looked into that and it looks, I, if I remember right, it actually did originate in the House, although it later appeared to have originated in the Senate for some complicated reason. But in any case, um, as f- you know, in the Munoz Flores case, the court was confronted with the question of whether to enforce the origination clause or to leave it as a political question. And Justice Scalia, for example, did not want to have the court enforce the origination clause. And the Supreme Court did not go with him. The majority of the court said that the origination clause is an enforceable limit on congressional power. And it has has been enforced in some limited circumstances in the past. And that means a bill that is that raises revenue that does not originate in the House of Representatives is null and void. There's at least one federal district court case that struck down a tax on that grounds. So it's possible that it would open the door uh, to, to future lawsuits that would enforce compliance with the United States Constitution, and I favor that. If I can ask Tim, there are other taxes in Obamacare. That's right. If you win, what happens to those other taxes? That's right. I, I believe the entire bill is invalid for, that re- for, for the reason I've given. Before you ask your question, just to uh, follow up on something that Tim mentioned, I mean, the reason why we care about this origination clause uh, challenge isn't just because, well, we're, you know, green-eyed shade, you know, read every little word in the Constitution, you know, as if that wasn't a good enough reason. But there's a substantive reason why the origination clause exists. Uh, uh, Remember, in the original Constitution, senators weren't directly elected. Uh, The House was. And so there was a great concern that 
you know, after the example of King George, that taxes would be levied on the people without their consent, without any representation. And so if you required uh, tax bills to start in the House, then you had a measure of accountability that would otherwise be lacking. There's a, quite a, a, a heavy substantive reason uh, behind Well, this and this point. touches on, on something Mr. Cannon said, that w w the reason why we have this rule is because of the kind of political thing that happened with the election of Scott Brown, because people were upset about what was going on. The majority of the American people have never supported Obamacare, and today the majority of the American people continue to oppose Obamacare. And it was rammed through at Christmas time through a shady uh, reconciliation procedure that avoided ever making Congress actually responsible to the American people. And that's why we have the origination clause, to prevent that sort of thing from happening. So I'm, I'm entirely in favor of opening the floodgates to future lawsuits to require Congress to obey the Constitution. Yes, my name is Todd Kafer. I write this relatively insignificant blog called freemarketmonkey.com. And I wrote an article um, on my blog addressing and questioning this thing that Goldwater actually came up with. This obscure little one paragraph italicized uh, in the ACA under uh, subtitle G, section 1555. I won't get this exactly yeah, everybody right. Everybody go to your copies. <laughs> <laughs> I won't get this exactly right, but it's really curious. It, it essentially says that issuers of insurance, companies, insurance companies, uh, uh, businesses, so forth, who issue insurance shall not be required to uh, participate in uh, insurance under, in federal insurance under this act, nor uh, can they be penalized for choosing not to participate. Now, when you combine that with um, the McCarran-Ferguson McCarran and the state's uh, right to regulate insurance, I question why the states cannot compel their uh, insurance companies in their states to issue insurance outside of the Affordable Care Act. In other words, compel them to also, to also uh, issue noncompliant insurance. Okay, that in other words, somebody that uh, did not wouldn't get much of a of a subsidy. Somebody in a higher income wouldn't get much of or no subsidy, could simply pay the fine, and uh, buy one of these these policies, stash money into a, you know a, a reasonable high deductible policy, stash money into a health savings account, and end up having money left over in their pocket. Now my question is that I would assume that this would that. Uh, uh, under the supremacy clause, that the feds would prevail if these mandates were not part of this act. In other words, if these mandates would be by separate legislation, that they would trump the states. But how can the act itself say that they don't have to comply with, they don't have to participate? And the, and the, and the okay. mandates I, I think, themselves I think we got the question. Okay. I, I, I'm the non-lawyer on the panel, but I think what that section means, 1555, is that an insurance company cannot be compelled to participate in a health insurance exchange, to sell through a health insurance exchange. That an individual cannot be compelled to purchase health insurance through a health insurance exchange. I think they were trying to assuage fears that the exchange would be the only game in town. Now, they could still crowd out the non-exchange individual health insurance market, so the exchange would be the only game in town. But I don't think that what that provision means is, if you don't want to obey the, the rest of this law, you don't have to. 
I think that all the health insurance regulations therein are going to apply to every health insurance company. If they want to sell health insurance, they can't opt out of those. If I could just add uh, briefly, we we also we found that provision uh, and included it in some in some of our briefing. Uh, another claim in our lawsuit uh, deals with the Health Care Freedom Act, and in a nutshell, that uh, basically says that. It, an individual living in a particular state that has passed a Health Care Freedom Act cannot be forced into any particular sort of health insurance market, and force includes, uh, by definition, being taxed. And so, of course, this would seem uh, to directly prohibit the individual mandate from being enforced in states that have Health Care Freedom Acts. There are 17 states currently that do have Health Care Freedom Acts. Um, so part of the question in our lawsuit is whether or not the federal law because of the Supremacy Clause preempts state law that prohibits those sorts of fines and penalties and taxes and whatever we're going to call it uh, nowadays. And I think that that provision is important to lawsuits like ours because it, it indicates that the federal government, that Congress didn't necessarily intend to preempt the entire field of healthcare or the, uh, the entire field when it passed uh, the Obamacare law. And, you know, part of the argument in preemption law part of, uh, is that if a if the federal government did not intend to preempt the entire field, then the assumption is that the state does have the power to protect its citizens, and you have to, you know, and and you have to prove by a quite, you know, there, there's a, the burden of proof is on the federal government to show that it has intended to preempt a particular. Uh, a particular law. And so um, I, I think that that provision is particularly important in states that do have health care freedom acts. Michael, let me clarify something with you. So we know there are employer mandates and this individual mandate tax thing and, you know, exchanges, subsidies, whatever, but does Obamacare or pre-existing law uh, uh, prevent insurers from selling what would be now non-complying insurance? So to posit the example of the, of the gentleman, uh, if if a state health commissioner allows insurance companies to sell different yeah. things, that if don't it doesn't comply. if it doesn't comply with uh, the, the requirements for health insurance uh, laid out in the Public Health Service Act, then it's not going to be uh, so. So I can't pay the Obamacare law. penalty for not having a complying insurance and then buy non-complying insurance. Uh, that is correct. Now, but but actually, Section fifteen fifty five that you mentioned, sir, I think is is important because it, it plays a key role in an issue that uh, Christina and I have been have been discussing, and that's the Power, the power that states have under Obamacare to stop even a federal exchange from operating in their state. And it's, because, it's precisely because that, uh, uh, that provision tells insurance companies that they don't have to participate in an exchange if they want, which means they don't have to take any subsidies through uh, an exchange, that states can say, look, uh, we are passing a healthcare freedom act. We want our citizens to have the freedom not to purchase health insurance and to be free from any penalties. Uh, so not only are we gonna prevent our state employees from implementing any uh, state or federal law that would result direct or directly or indirectly in our uh, employers or residents being penalized uh, for not purchasing health insurance, we are going to tempor temporarily uh, and partially suspend the license of any insurance company in our state that accepts a subsidy that results in one of our employers or um, uh, residents being penalized for lack of purchasing health insurance. As I mentioned before, those subsidies, which under Obamacare flow through the exchanges straight to the insurance companies, 
are what triggers penalties against employers. If one of their if workers receives one of those subsidies, the employer gets hit with that penalty. And in a much less uh, direct, more attenuated way, uh, if those subsidies flow through the federal ex through the exchanges, then a lot of individuals will be taxed under the individual mandate because they won't be eligible for the affordability exemption. But the point is, the statute says that if a state, if a, if an insurance company is not licensed and in good standing in this in the state in which they're selling insurance through an exchange and every other state through which uh, in which they sell insurance through an exchange, then they can't sell insurance through an exchange. And because states have the power to revoke licenses of insurance companies that violate state policies, they can prevent any insurance company from operating through a federal exchange. And that section 1555 is part of the reason why. If the federal government required the insurance companies to take the subsidy, required them to participate in an exchange, states couldn't do that, but they can, in part because of that provision. So we're, the Cato Institute in the coming weeks will be releasing a paper where I discussed how states can stop even a federal exchange from operating in their states, and that's a, a key reason. Thank you. Uh, Annabelle Fisher, um, sometimes contribute to alexandrianews.org, also a licensed clinical social worker. First thing I want to do is thank all the lawyers and non-lawyers up here for... Uh, uh, hopefully getting some changes to the Affordable Care Act. I want to talk primarily with Christina about the um, Independent pa Payment Advisory Board in Medicare because I am now on Medicare. And I think one of the problems that I have and I, I'm, is that the, you use the buzzwords, death panel, um, rationing care. Let me tell you, I've worked in some of the top teaching hospitals in the United States, and I could be on that panel. Because we do, we really need, or we really are spending a lot of money keeping people alive and not having a dis real discussion on death and dying. So um, I, I'm glad docs are not getting onto that iPad board. But it is a discussion we need to have. And there's, and there's so much abuse with Medicare in some states regard to medical equipment, docs setting up clinics that aren't really operating, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'd like to raise a question to you about, and I know I called Mr. Cannon to have a press conference. He wasn't around because he probably didn't remember me. Also, in, when I lived in Seattle, and I hope things are fine at Sac State because that's where I got my master's degree, um, Washington State did implement the death with dignity law, and many patients opted not to have so, uh, death so with dignity. So your question, question generally is, is how um, Medicare is already rationing um, services to Medicare patients. Medicare is already capping PT, and for me, what they did, Medicare approved the needle but denied the vaccine for the medication in the needle. So it's already occurring. So what do you think, How if this iPad board doesn't happen, and if Mr. Cannon is correct that the Oklahoma case will really change this Affordable Care Act. What's your concern with this board of hopefully physicians, medical folks like myself who've worked in healthcare, and what's gonna happen in 2014 that nobody can give us an answer to? None of us, especially with regard to Part D of Medicare. So what are you afraid of? Well, <laughs> You know, you, you make a very good point about the fact that real reforms do need to be made to the Medicare program. Absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, I think the concern here is that 
whether or not, and Michael could probably go into this more about what's happening in the current Medicare uh, program, but right now, at the very least, when Congress you know, makes laws when Congress uh, reforms or uh, makes laws about Medicare, at least Congress is directly responsible to the people. The people have to elect members to Congress. And so therefore, if somebody votes a certain way on Medicare, then they're at least checked by uh, the people, which is what the founders envisioned when they created uh, a government of separate powers and made Congress directly responsible to the people. The problem with IPAB is that we're giving that power that has traditionally, since the 1960s, been a power of Congress to a board of 15 unelected bureaucrats, or as I mentioned, perhaps just one, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And the problem is that that power will be consolidated in a board that is not only not accountable to Congress and therefore the people, but accountable to absolutely nobody. It can't be checked by the judiciary and the executive and whatnot. So I think that's the concern uh, with IPEV. I think there's, there's certainly no disagreement that something needs to be done about Medicare. The problem is how we do it and, uh, and whether or not the people who are making those decisions are going to be ultimately accountable to the, the people and to taxpayers. That's the concern. But, but, but the, I was going to say, there's this concern for some, but to some people it's a good thing. We mentioned Professor Jost, who in a, in a, a law review article he published of, of early last year, I believe, um, praised IPAB for being what he called a group of platonic guardians. That was his phrase, a group of platonic guardians to regulate medicine. Now, I'm sure everybody in the audience has read Plato's Republic, and you remember Remember what the duties of the guardians in the Republic were, that they included, among other things, regulating the practice of medicine, and that their duties included getting rid of the undesirables in order to satisfy the needs of the collective. Well, the Founding Fathers had contempt for Plato. Thomas Jefferson said that, the, that thousands of volumes had not explained the, the, uh, the ideas of Plato because nonsense can never be explained. And Thomas Jefferson said that the only thing, I mean, uh, John Adams said the only thing he ever learned from Plato is that you can cure hiccups with a pinch of snuff. They had contempt for Plato and chose instead a constitutional system of separation of powers and checks and balances and responsibility to the people. So the question isn't so much, do government services in the end uh, ration mm -hmm. those services? Of course, all government services are going to inevitably do that um, because otherwise people are going to demand you know, uh, exotic uh, requirements from the government with, with no control. The question is whether those controls should be created by an independent agency not answerable to the people in any sense whatsoever. I, I I think in Professor Joe's defense, I think he was citing that tongue was citing uh, Plato tongue in cheek. He did say the, enter the Platonic Guardians. I I, I like to think he understood the implications of what he was saying there. However, the problem is with Medicare is that Medicare doesn't ration enough. The problem with Medicare is that Medicare pays for absolutely everything and forces everyone else to ration uh, consumption to fund a lot of wasteful healthcare. So, so my problem with IPAB is not that it would lead to rationing, but as Christina said, that it is a super legislature, unaccountable to the people. Hi, I'm Stuart Taylor. Wait for the mic. <laughs> Stuart Taylor, unaffiliated. Uh, are the problems, constitutional problems with IPAB curable such that a cleaned up IPAB, cleaned up by the courts, strike down a little here, snip off a little there, could survive, or, or does IPAB have well, to go? Yeah, but then we'd have two med packs. Exactly. If you wanted to save it, 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 it would turn from IPAB into med pack, and then you'd have two 
really advisory commissions that Congress would ignore. The reason they created IPAB is because Congress kept ignoring MedPAC, and they were like, no, we want, we want an agency with teeth that can really get things done. And it's, it's straight out of road to serfdom what they're doing. Uh, it's precisely because the political system was not responding to the experts that they said, we've got to give the experts more power than Congress. But, but Christina, could that happen? Like in the Free Enterprise Fund case, you just, as Stuart said, just change one of the appointment clauses or something like that? And so, so what we're talking about is severability, whether or not if there's a particular provision of a law that is offensive to the Constitution, can the rest of it survive? I think in the case of IPAB, Congress would have to go back and revisit that law. I do not think it's possible to sever, to sever uh, the parts of IPAB that are unconstitutional and uh, and and. We actually argue in our lawsuit that if IPAB were to be struck down as unconstitutional, the whole rest of the Obamacare law would have to go with it. The reason we argue this is because, as we all know, part of uh, what the president said when he uh, was talking about uh, Obamacare is that it's going to make Medicare uh, medical costs much cheaper in the country, right? And certainly we haven't seen the effects of that. We've seen the opposite happening already as various provisions of the law are rolled out. So one of the ways that the law has to make up for the increase in costs that, uh, in medical costs that's being caused by the law is through a independent board like IPAB. Um, IPAB is supposed to control costs in both the Medicare realms and, and in other, uh, as, as I mentioned, in other areas of healthcare. And so uh, that is essential to one of the stated missions of Congress in passing Obamacare, which is to keep costs in the medical field under control. If IPAB is no longer constitutional and is not part of the law anymore, well, then also there goes uh, Congress's efforts to keep costs down. So we argue that, that it is not severable from the law and the whole law would have to fall. Bob Shadler, thank you very much for a very interesting panel. Uh, my question regards the powers of the HHS secretary. We know already that the current HHS secretary has changed the definition of religious groups that can opt out of part of Obamacare. Uh, my question then is, can future HHS secretaries change the provisions that the current HH secretary has already changed a couple of times. For example, could a future HHS secretary say, we can't really delve into the religious consciences of everybody, and so if you wanna, if, it, if this provision offends your religious conscience, just sign a simple waiver saying that it does, and we'll exempt you. That would be an extreme example, but I, I don't see how the HHS Secretary of today can bind future HHS secretaries from further changing that provision. Yeah, I, I don't think there's an APAB-like provision that, that you know, prevents future rulemaking to countermand uh, current rulemaking. The, the larger issue is whether all of these rules, uh, waivers or otherwise, and waivers especially, uh, whether they uh, defy the, the overall legislation, either by exceeding the powers delegated or making so many carve-outs that it affect your, the secretary is governing by waiver rather than Congress governing by general law. Um, but but you, raise, you raise an interesting point, which is 
uh, that people, no matter your political stripes, you, you should be very leery about giving executive branch officials this sort of discretionary power because you might like the result. When Congress gives the Secretary of Health and Human Services the power to decide what preventive services are, so the preventive services that everyone will have to buy under the law. Uh, you might like the, res the result when that HHS secretary is Kathleen Sebelius and she says all forms of birth control, sterilization, and, um, and even some uh, abortifacients. But what happens when, I don't know, the, 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 the next HHS secretary comes along, maybe that's Bobby Jindal, maybe it's some other Republican, a social conservative, who says absolutely not, you're not gonna like, uh, you're not gonna like it when that secretary has that power, or, or you're not gonna like it when that power falls into the hands of people who disagree with you. Likewise, you might like that. Uh, Obamacare sets up a situation where if the president doesn't uh, nominate or the Senate doesn't confirm anyone to IPAB, all those powers fall to the secretary. But if you like, you might, uh, you might like that when, it's, when Kathleen Sebelius is the secretary, but if it's Bobby Jindal or someone else, these are incredibly broad powers that IPAB or the secretary will have. And so you might, you might like the idea of, uh, of Sibelius forcing everyone into accountable care organizations or whatever reforms she would put into place. But if Bobby Jindal is the next HHS secretary and he says, you know what, we're going to change, we're going to convert Medicare to a voucher program, he would have the power to do it under Obamacare anyway. And not only that, but some of President Obama's own advisors have said so. They have said that President Obama should convert the whole uh, uh, system to premium support using IPAP because he can basically tell his HHS secretary what to do. The uh, HHS secretary is still accountable to him. But that's just a, a reason, I think, why pe no matter your political stripes, you should be very leery about this sort of discretionary power in the hands of uh, executive branch officials. And interestingly enough, um, Congress held hearings on IPAB, gosh, I think it was a couple of years ago now, and one of my uh, former colleagues, Diane Cohen, was there testifying, and they asked Secretary Sebelius about some of the powers that she would possess under IPAB, uh, including rationing care. And they asked her, well, you know, what if you or IPAB uh, do in fact decide to ration care? You know, what, what, what could be done about that? And she, she thought about it for a moment, and then she said, well, someone could file a lawsuit. And of course, <laughs> <laughs> she clearly didn't read the law because as far, of course what we know is that it, plain as day in the law, it says you cannot bring a lawsuit against an IPAB decision. So uh, it's very clear that the secretary has a very, very broad authority here. No administrative review either. That's right. Final question, I'm afraid. We'll go over there. Uh, Carol Monaco, American Osteopathic Association. What are the chances of any of these cases making it to the Supreme Court and actually getting, uh, you know, whether it's part of the Affordable Care Act or all of it overturned because of its, you know, the unconstitutional issues? What are, the, what are the odds and is there any case that you think has the strongest chance of getting back to the Supreme Court? Well, we're we talking about your respective cases. All right, uh, you know, I'm I'm not a lawyer and these aren't my cases, but I've been doing most of the re research surrounding the Oklahoma case, so let me comment on that. The uh, the case against the IRS's attempt to offer those tax credits and subsidies in those 33 states that have vetoed them. The case against the IRS there is ironclad. 
my, my co-author and I, uh, I think our paper is available outside. We said the, it's ironclad. The IRS doesn't have a leg to stand on. Um, so part of me thinks it won't even make it to the Supreme Court. I mean, this is so absurd and unconstitutional and contrary to statute what the, uh, the Obama administration is trying to do. But we like to joke that the case against uh, the IRS is ironclad. They don't have a leg to stand on. That means we have a 20% chance of prevailing in court. Let me put it to you this way. That case is far stronger than the one about recess appointments on which the government got a huge smackdown two weeks ago. Well, in, in our case, I, I think um, obviously we face an uphill battle. There's very little precedent on the origination clause, um, but the Supreme Court has said that they are that this is a justiciable issue that it will uh, pay attention to. Um, and I think, of course, we're right now in the trial court. The motion, the government has moved to dismiss. Um, I think we have, I, I hesitate to put a number on our, on our chance. I would just say that I think we have a very high likelihood of being dismissed from the trial court. Um, then when we go to the court of appeal, I think we have a better shot at that point. And then, of course, whether the Supreme Court cares enough to take the case, you know, is still, is still up there. But well, I bring meritorious cases against the government because these arguments deserve to have their day in court um, rather than because I think as a strategic matter, ultimately my case is going to be the one to, to strike down this unconstitutional law. Um, I also think that this, ours is one of many cases, as I like to say, it's part of this complete breakfast. I think the effort to obtain genuine consumer-oriented reform for medical care in this country has to take, it, part of it has to be in litigation, and that's my job. Part of it has to be in policy, and part of it has to be in politics. And the one thing that's absolutely clear is that we cannot get change if we keep allowing our elected officials to delegate all these questions to unelected and, and, and exceptionally independent bureaucrats. Um, but I think the, ultimately the, the lawsuits are, are all work together to keep the pressure up so that the American people a majority of whom oppose Obamacare can have the opportunity to get real reform done. That carefully avoids answering your question, by the way. <laughs> um, for my part, I'll say I was an econ major, not a finance major, so I'm very risk averse, uh, not a gambler, not going to make any uh, predictions um, on our IPAB lawsuit, except for to say that you know, uh, when it comes to non-delegation cases, uh, the last time that the Supreme Court struck down a law for violating a, uh, the non-delegation doctrine uh, for lacking an intelligible principle was during the New Deal era. It was about uh, 80 years ago. So uh, in that sense, it looks like we certainly have the cards stacked against us. That said, uh, every single law that has been upheld uh, against non-delegation challenges or broader separation of powers challenges has been nothing like IPAB. All of these other laws, if they don't have, you know, if they have an intelligible principle, um, you know, or if they don't have an intelligible principle, they have judicial review, or they have administrative review, or the president gets to do something about the recommendations before they go to Congress. Um, IPAB is truly unprecedented in the sense that it lacks every sort of review. And so uh, this is, it's a case, it would be a case of first impression. This would be the first time that it would lack not only an intelligible principle, but any other sort of review by any of the other branches of government. So I think it's a very important question for uh, the court to answer, because if IPAB is okay, then, then anything is okay. We no longer have a government that is separated into three branches.
And keep in mind that, of course, nobody thought that the, that the I mean, nobody in the official legal academy and, and intelligentsia believed that the Commerce Clause challenge to Obamacare had any chance. And, and nobody thought that the, that the Spending Clause challenge to Obamacare had any chance. And so I, I think it's, it's unwise to try and read the tea leaves at this point. And, 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 and I should add to my answer that that 20% chance of Oklahoma succeeding or, or, or of someone blocking the IRS, uh, challenge the IRS prevailing in court, that rises, I think, with every plaintiff, every additional plaintiff who files suit. And there are another 32 states and tens of millions of employers and individual citizens who are going to be illegally taxed by the Obama administration here. Every time another one of them files suit, I think the odds improve. I mean, these are really sui generis circumstances. I mean, just as we were all pounding the table and saying that it's unprecedented with respect to the individual mandate, all these things are uh, as well. And this is a good note to uh, end on because the, as far, with, with respect to the contraceptive mandates, I mean, currently I think it's 10 to 4 or 11 to 3 against the government. Uh, in the lower courts, we're still in the preliminary stages, preliminary injunctions, questions of standing and ripeness and, and, and this and that, uh, but it's not looking good. But if and when it goes to the Supreme Court, I think it's likely, unless the administration uh, radically changes its policy here, the plaintiff should win without even getting to the constitutional claims. And that's because the Religious Freedom Restoration Act prohibits the government from placing a, quote, substantial burden on the exercise of religion unless it has a, quote, compelling interest and uses the, quote, least restrictive means to achieve it. Uh, I think uh, you don't have to be a, a lawyer to, to see that that's not going on here. Now, some may argue that it's a, a, a conflict of, of differing rights uh, between religious freedom and women's rights or, or freedom, but that's a false choice, as the president likes to call these things. If the HHS rule is repealed, women would still be perfectly free to buy contraceptives, obtain them, uh, abortions, and whatever else isn't uh, against the law. They just wouldn't be able to force others to pay for them. But there's an even bigger issue here. Uh, this is just the latest example of the difficulties in turning healthcare or increasing parts of our economy more broadly over to the government. As my colleague Roger Pallon has written, when healthcare or anything is socialized or treated as a public utility, we're forced to fight for every carve-out of liberty or choice or what have you. The more that government controls, whether we're talking healthcare, education, or even marriage, the greater the battles over conflicting values. Uh, with certain things like national defense or uh, basic infrastructure, clean air and water, um, certain what, things that you call public goods or that economists do, we largely agree, at least within reasonable margins. But we have vast disagreements about social programs, economic regulation, and uh, so much else that the government now dominates at the expense of individual liberty. And so those supporting uh, any of these challenges uh, are rightly concerned that people are being forced to do what they don't want for religious or uh, any or no reason. Uh, but all that comes with the collectivized territory. Thanks very much. Reception outside in the lobby. Uh, restrooms are on the second floor, um, uh, just up the spiral staircase. Thank you. Thank you. The rest of the